Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. You've got uh, your coloring pages. This week's catechism pages should be seven and eight. So you'll be able to add to your question and answer for your discipleship stuff at home. Uh, We've also got sermon notes in in the back there. And if you grab those sermon notes, remember there's a tear off at the bottom with a question of the week. If you get that question answered, your name on there and grade, and then put it in the answer box, you'll be able to uh, get a drawing from the prize box we'll have at the end of the month and be eligible for the drawings for restaurant gift cards. So just so you youngins can stay engaged, parents, you are allowed to help, but you may not take the gift card from the children um, if, if they win. So, But uh, we, we want to invite everybody to join us next week for a fellowship meal. Right after the service, we're going to have a meal together to uh, just celebrate being church family. So everyone is invited. Everything is provided So don't worry about what you need to bring next week. There is not a list of side dishes or weird jello salads that we'd like you to bring. Instead, just bring yourself and be ready to spend a few moments together as church family. We've also got, of course, our regular studies and stuff throughout this week. So don't forget, if you're looking for a way to get engaged, we've got our Monday night Bible study tomorrow night downstairs at uh, 7 p.m. Wednesday night, the ladies' ministry meets in the women's ministry room downstairs at 6.30. Thursday, it's our students, 7th through 12th grade, who are in the fellowship hall or the youth room. So don't be afraid to uh, gather, to connect, to get to know one another. 1829 just met this last Friday, so we won't meet again until the first Friday in November. But we enjoyed our time because we got to eat soup and you didn't. So... It was really good soup, and we enjoyed our time together. So, uh, But everybody is invited next Sunday after the morning service to join us for a meal where everything is provided, and all you need to do is show up and enjoy time together as church family. Today we are going to continue our series to live in the book of Philippians, in the letter of Philippians. And so if you remember these three squiggly letters, it's Zeta, Eta, Nu, It's the Greek zane, which means to live. And it comes from the verse here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul says to the church in Philippi, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that is really, amongst all the great verses in the letter to the Philippian church, this is probably the one that we would consider to be its thematic heart. The Apostle Paul helping the Philippian church to understand, helping us to understand the significance of living a life well for the sake of Jesus Christ, but also that when this life ends, it only gets better. So we have much to rejoice in and much to be thankful for as we study what it is to live according to the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bible, 
I encourage you to open it up to the book of Philippians, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And we are going to continue looking in chapter 1 on the details of what Paul is wanting to express to the church in Philippi. Now, we understood that even Paul's greeting at the very beginning was fraught with great doctrinal depth. And then as he moved from his greeting into the next few verses in chapter 1, verses 3 and following, we see that Paul is celebrating his relationship with the church in Philippi. He considers them partners in the gospel. And that word partnership is actually the same word that many of us know as fellowship, koinonia. It is a, in the original Greek, it's like a business partnership where two or three or more partners actually pool their resources together, willingly sacrificing what they already have in order to gain something more. And so this partnership in the gospel that we are supposed to be partaking in as Christians is not a flippant coming together and agreeing on a Sunday about the things we should do as a church necessarily, but it's instead a full life investment towards achieving the goodness of God's kingdom and the gospel throughout the world. And then after celebrating his partnership with the Philippian church, Paul prays for them. And he prays, this is the very beginning of that prayer, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. That there is this place in the life of every Christian that we have a need, and that is that our love for one another and for God would grow so that we might understand life as he would have us understand it and also live wisely in light of this growing love and knowledge. So by the time we get to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we're going to look at just the very first half of 18, and we're going to see that this is Paul's quick update on his current circumstances. So if you were to be taking notes today, and you were wanting to answer a true or false question, this is the truth. This is Paul's quick update on his current circumstances. And it's also a testimony of God's great power to work in the midst of what we would agree are, from our perspective, evil or troubling experiences. So if you have your Bible open and you'd like to join in reading with me, or you can open up the Bible app, of course, and find today's notes, and you can follow along there. Let's read together, you silently and me out loud, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So here's what Paul writes in these verses. He says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So Paul is updating the Philippian church on his circumstances, and it's something that we need to be updated on too, many of us, so that we can understand what's going on 
in this letter and understand the context a little better. So Paul says to the church in verse one, or chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. And a lot of us, we may not be familiar with what has actually happened to Paul up until this point. So where we need to turn to discover what's going on or what has brought Paul to this point in his biography is Acts chapter 22. And you can flip there if you want. We're not going to read all of this verse because it's Acts 22 through 28. There's a lot of stuff that happens to the Apostle Paul to bring him to this point where he is writing this letter to the Philippian church. So many of us know that in Acts chapter 16, remember back to the introduction of this series, that the Apostle Paul and his cohorts Timothy and Barnabas and... Uh, no, Silas, excuse me, Timothy, Silas, and Luke. Had to get the right guys in my head. Timothy, Silas, and Luke, they all went into Philippi, the, uh, the first church to be established in Europe, there in Macedonia. They went into Philippi, and they began to share the good news of the gospel, but they weren't able to stay long. They were kicked out because of some incidents with, oh, you know, casting out demons and things like that. And, um, and, and Paul really didn't return to Philippi for a very long time, but Luke and Timothy stayed behind uh, and be continued to serve and, and disciple those in Philippi. So Paul continued to go on missionary journeys to plant more churches. A number of years passes and Paul returns to Jerusalem. He had been warned that once he got to Jerusalem, he would be taken, uh, taken into captivity by the Jewish people and he would be... Uh, potentially even killed and Paul didn't care he went to Jerusalem the Jews plotted to kill him he he was arrested uh, he was kept in the the house of the governor in Caesarea so he spent two years in prison in Rome in Palestine there in the city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea and that whole time he was talking with the governor of Palestine and witnessing to him and trying to get him to accept Jesus. Well, that governor dies, a new one comes in. It ends up that Paul really is afraid for his life at this point, so he appeals to Caesar, which is the right of every Roman citizen in this era. If you have a, a circumstance where you feel like you are facing judgment by the government and it will be unfair with the uh, leader that you're sitting under, that you can appeal all the way up to Caesar automatically. So it'd be kind of like us. We have an issue with a brother or sister. We bring it to a local magistrate. We don't feel like the magistrate is going to deal with us rightly. So we appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court immediately. Well, that was essentially what Paul was able to do. And uh, Caesar, the emperor, was both the sovereign and the... the, the uh, the executive and also the judiciary in this circumstance. And so Paul then begins this journey to Rome to plead his case before Caesar. So he is arrested. He has already spent two years in prison in, in Palestine, in Israel area. He spends a year sailing to Rome, and in that year, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta and witnessed to others and planted a church, and then ends up in Rome 
And the book of Acts ends with the fact that Paul spent two years in Rome under house arrest as his appeal is, it goes up to Caesar and Caesar researches and, and he finds out about Paul and, and then pronounces judgment upon Paul's request. And that whole time he was under guard by Caesar's personal guard. About 9,000 soldiers made up this guard, the Praetorian Guard. And they were responsible for these prisoners who had appealed directly to Caesar. So Paul would have been living in a house in Rome and had at least one Praetorian Guard chained to him at all times. And they rotated a, a different guard every four to, to six hours. Now, you're a missionary, imagine, and you are stuck in a house, and every four to six hours, a new man is chained to you and has nowhere to go, and all you can do is talk to one another. Does this sound like torture? No, it isn't. Not for Paul, maybe for you and me, yes, but not for Paul. Paul sees this as an opportunity. All of a sudden, in these whole, this whole time, these two years, Paul has a different guard cycling through regularly that is an opportunity for him to share the good news of Jesus Christ with. And so what we might look at and go, that's terrible. Paul looked at and went, this is great. And so this is where the book of Acts leaves Paul. And we actually think that the book, the letter to the Philippian church was written sometime near the end of this two-year imprisonment that Acts records. Why sometime near the end? Well, because the whole transaction uh, between the Philippian church and Paul that we're going to see later on, where they had sent a gift to him, the messenger that took the gift took ill and spent a number of, of days or weeks even ill under Paul's care, and then that messenger went back, that that whole cycle could have taken up to a year. So we think it's late in Paul's imprisonment when he writes this letter to the Philippian church. So this catches, him, catches us up to this statement. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him? Years of imprisonment. He's been chained to guards for years who have been given responsibility over him, but he's also been able to share the gospel with on a regular basis. He has been um, cared for by the gifts of others for years. He's been unable to work a job to provide for himself. And he has been living these two years in Rome under constant threat that Caesar would find him guilty and he might be condemned to death. Now, ultimately, this two-year imprisonment ends with Paul's a pronouncement of, uh, of innocence and Paul being released, his next imprisonment in Rome ends with his beheading. But that isn't now, that's later. But here, Paul is living under the threat of death. He's been chained to guards, but he, in all of this, and all of these experiences, it has actually advanced the gospel. I want you to know that all of this bad stuff that has transpired these last five years in my life. All of this stuff I could complain about, all of this stuff I could lament about, every last bit of it has resulted in the advance of the gospel. 
Now, what's interesting is this word advanced. He says it's actually advanced the gospel. In the Greek, this means to blaze a trail through difficult and barrier-filled terrain that others, especially an army, may follow. You see, Paul saw this experience, all of this trouble, and he, he, he walked through it and he said, guess what has happened? God has opened the door for others to follow me into this unknown territory and for the gospel to be shared. And that's how Paul saw his imprisonment. And that's how Paul saw his life. Not as drudgery, not as shame, not as, oh, woe is me. But instead, Paul understood it to be an open door for others to follow along with him and for the good news of Jesus Christ to bust into new areas of life that it had never been. New places, new cities, new circumstances. And we're going to see that he actually sees God taking advantage of it in all kinds of ways that maybe we would have been a little bitter about. Now, as we just pause right here and think of Paul's troubles and the advancement of the gospel, I wanted to answer one question that comes up a lot in the Christian life. And that question is, why does God allow suffering and trouble? Anybody ever ask that question? Yeah. Okay, everybody should have raised their hand to it, at least some extent, whether it's you know, just a little uh, or, or nodded your head or something. Because if you've never asked this question, first uh, issue may be you've never suffered, and that means you're, what, eight, uh, nine, uh, and you, know, you think suffering is that there's not quite enough milk for your cereal. Um, but, or, or you're just being dishonest. But most of us have asked this question. We, many of us ask it on a regular basis. God, why do you allow suffering and trouble? And what's interesting is even here in just this introduction to this letter to the Philippian church, Paul has answered that question. Paul has answered the question, why does God allow suffering and trouble? If we read verse 6 again, you can look back in your Bible and see this, God, uh, Paul says this about what God has allowed in the lives of other believers and himself. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul lets the Philippian church and all of us know that suffering and trouble comes up in our lives because it is a means by which God matures believers and brings us into Christ-likeness. Now, this is not the only place where we see this. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. A lot of us know it. We've maybe memorized it. We've probably misused it at some point in our Christian life. And we know that God works out all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We like Romans 8, 28. That one's real nice. God makes everything work out for good for everybody who loves him and are called according to his purpose. But what verse 29 does is it gives us exactly what God is doing and what it means by good. Because verse 29 tells us, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, the good that God has planned for all of us, the good that he makes out of the bad that happens in our life, is not good according to our definition, but it is good we grow in Christ-likeness. That is, in fact, the best outcome for each and every one of us 
in every circumstance in life that we would look and be more like Jesus. So Paul has let us know here in, in this simple letter to the Philippian church, first, why does God allow suffering and trouble? Well, number one, to mature believers in the faith. Number two, to glorify himself. Chapter 1, verse 11. Here's what he's, the end of his prayer says. He would love to see the Philippians filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And what's the ultimate goal of his prayer, the ultimate goal of everything he wants to see happen in the life of the Philippian church? To the praise, or to the glory and praise of God. Scripture tells us over and over again throughout that everything is to God's glory. And so why does God allow suffering in our life? So that he might work it out in us and he might receive the glory when the good comes. Now, does that feel unfair? Maybe. But who are you, O Clay, to question what the potter will do with you? Romans chapter 9 gives us some real clear views that God will do what he longs and desires to do with whomever he longs and desires to do it because he's God. Now, that shouldn't make us give up and go, oh, that stinks. Instead, we should say, I rejoice that God is glorified in all that happens in my life. And when it hurts, it glorifies God. And when it's good, it glorifies God. And when he redeems the situation, it's to his glory. And when he allows me to fail utterly, it is to his glory. And we don't always have that perspective, do we? We think we've got to have big things and flashy things and the right things and be the right kind of person according to cultural standards before we can count ourselves successful and to God's glory. But the truth is, is that if you walk in faithfulness to him, you are to his glory. If you are obedient to him, regardless of the circumstances that work out in your life, you are to his glory. And that's one of the reasons he allows suffering and trouble in our life is to glorify himself. And then this last answer, why does he allow suffering and trouble? Finally, to advance the gospel. And here we see it, verse 12 that we just read. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Remember, when we read about what has happened to Paul, this is not just he's had a bad day. He's been in prison or in chains and shackles for at least five years when he writes this. He's been in danger of death over and over again. He got snake bit for Jesus. And I don't mean like some sort of like, you know, weird symbolism. Like literally, he was shipwrecked gathering firewood and got snake bit because of his faithfulness to Christ and God healed him. All of this trouble, all of this suffering was to advance the gospel. So we can know that God allows these things in our life to mature us, to glorify himself, and to advance the gospel. And Paul goes on to say in verse 13, here's what it means to advance the gospel. Here's what's happened because of his imprisonment. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else. In other words, Paul has this experience and he is making the most of it. And this trouble that's come into his life, God is using it 
so that everyone in the Imperial Guard, everybody who knows about Paul, knows that he is imprisoned because he is in Christ. He is suffering. He's in chains. He's experiencing trouble. Not because people hate him, but he says, because I'm a believer. Everybody knows I'm in trouble because I love Jesus. Isn't that kind of backwards from what we would expect in our own culture, in our own experiences? We kind of go, you know, I should be out of trouble and life should be perfect because I'm in Christ. And Paul says here, the very reason I'm experiencing trauma and trouble and persecution is because everybody knows that Jesus is my king. Everybody understands what's at the center of my life. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that the people in your spheres of contact, they should be able to know and see that Christ is your greatest influence. That's what Paul really is saying here. He's saying, everybody I run into, everybody everywhere, everybody who knows about my imprisonment knows it's because I love Jesus. Jesus should be so at the center of who we are as Christians that people will attribute everything, good, bad, or indifferent in our life, to his rule and reign. Because they know we're his. Now, many people were coming to know of Paul's influence, and they were coming to know of Christ's influence upon Paul. And here's what the result was, he says. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. In other words, there were Christians who said, Paul's in chains. Yes, I'm going to share the gospel. Maybe I can get arrested too. Maybe, maybe, maybe this could happen to me. Maybe I could suffer for Jesus. They became confident in sharing the gospel. If that's the worst, I'm in for it. If that's all that could happen, well, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So many Christians gained confidence to speak fearlessly. But he says there were also some who came to preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, while others preached out of goodwill. So can you believe there were actually Christians in Rome who were sharing the gospel of Jesus, trying to get Paul into more trouble. Like, maybe if we preach louder, they'll go ahead and condemn Paul, because they didn't like Paul. They thought he was a false apostle. They didn't like his teaching. They didn't like the way that he combed his hair. Uh, you know, they, just, they didn't have to have a reason. They just preached the gospel out of envy and rivalry, while others were preaching out of goodwill. So here's the cool thing about Paul's imprisonment. The gospel began to be preached in the royal guard, the praetorian guard. These 9,000 men who over the course of these years were cycling through Visiting Paul, chained to him four to six hours at a time, 24 hours a day, for two years straight. They get to sit beside this missionary who tells him, hey, have you ever heard about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, it's okay, we've got four hours, maybe six. Just depends on if, you know, the next guy's late. Plenty of time, let's talk about Jesus. Some even think that Paul might have had two guards chained to him at any time according to tradition and history. How cool would that have been? That's like double the bang. Paul is excited that he is imprisoned. He's excited to suffer for Jesus. 
because it's resulted in the opportunity for hundreds of people to cycle through chains and his side and hear the good news of Jesus. The second result, some people were confident in in, in faithfully sharing the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They were excited to see what God was doing in Paul's life, and they were like, man, I hope he can do it through me. I hope I can share Jesus like Paul can, that others can know that, that I love Jesus like Paul loves Jesus. And then finally, Paul says, thankfully, I'm so happy there were some people sharing Jesus who were trying to get me into trouble. And we might go, what? Why would he be thankful for that? Because Paul says, from his perspective, whether it's with good intentions or bad, I'm so happy that the gospel is being shared. He goes on to say this in 16 and 17, These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, or excuse me, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. He says these two different groups of people, some are just excited to share Jesus for all the right reasons, and some are sharing Jesus hoping to get me into trouble which seems really backwards, but okay. And here's what Paul says. Here's his response. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. There were people trying to cause Paul trouble, trying to get him executed for his faith, essentially. And what's his response? Yes. They're sharing the gospel. They're sharing Jesus. Whatever it costs me doesn't matter because the gospel is being shared. So as Paul is updating his status with the Philippian church, he wants them to know that he's excited that if the true gospel is proclaimed, we and they and all of us as Christians, we should rejoice regardless of the messenger or their motives. That when the gospel goes out, we should be excited. We shouldn't be territorial. We should ourselves be excited and willing to share the gospel and to give up whatever it takes in order to do so, even to the point of imprisonment and death. And then if other people are sharing, whether from good motives or bad, hooray that the gospel is being shared. We should be excited. Now, what this does for us as Christians is a couple of things. Number one, it should motivate us to share the gospel ourselves. Brothers and sisters, if you have not in the last couple of years or or so told anyone about the good news of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, if you haven't told anyone about what he can do for them and how salvation is theirs upon a profession of faith and nothing more, if you haven't shared the gospel, it's time for you to step out and be bold again. To not be afraid. What's the worst they could do to you? Unfriend you on Facebook? Stop following you on Twitter? You won't have to watch their annoying TikTok videos anymore. Right? I mean, that's the worst that could happen in our culture. Why don't we share the gospel? We should be excited. And it also helps us to understand that other believers that we might disagree with on other points of doctrine, if they are faithfully sharing the true gospel, we should rejoice. Now, 
you might ask, what is the gospel? Now, hopefully those of you who've been here for a little while, you would remember our four diamonds. You would remember creation and how God has created us for relationship with him, and that relationship carries with it responsibility, a responsibility to obedience and to follow after his, his word. But all of us, starting with Adam and Eve, have eaten from the, the, the tree of disobedience. We have chosen our own way. And in doing so, we have sinned against God and we have earned his wrath and we have earned for ourselves eternal death. But God loved us so much that he didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us in the consequences of eternal death and his wrath. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect and sinless life, who walked this earth just like you and I did, tempted in every way and yet without sin. And then at the end of 33 and a half years of life, he gave himself on the cross as the sacrifice, the payment for our sin. He absorbed the wrath of God. And then on the third day, after having been buried, he rose again to prove it's all true. And everyone has the responsibility of choosing and responding, whether you will receive Jesus Christ as your King, as your Lord and Savior, and believe on his work in the cross, and that it applies to you that your sins are forgiven, that your life is renewed, or you will reject it as a fairy tale or a lie. Paul actually gives us the true gospel in a little bit more of a simplified manner. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he wants to remind them of the gospel that he has preached to them. So he says this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to this message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says this, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul says that what is most important, what is the gospel, what is the thing that when it is proclaimed we rejoice and when it is not we lament. The gospel is this, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to his followers. This is the gospel and it's, it's most boiled down and, and simplistic form. And so when we hear other people preach things and they say it is the gospel, if it does not include that Christ died for our sins, if it does not include the fact that he was buried and rose again and appeared, it is not the true gospel. In our day and age, too many people are telling us that the gospel is something else. The gospel means you will be healthy. The gospel is you'll have money. If you trust Jesus, the gospel is that Jesus died to make our culture better. 
The gospel is this, the gospel is that. Everything is a gospel issue to people. When the truth is if they are not proclaiming that Jesus came and lived and died as a sacrifice for your sins and mine, that he was buried because he was really dead and that he rose again on the third day and appeared to believers as proof of his resurrection. If they don't preach that as the gospel, they're not preaching the real gospel. And so it's important that those ministries that do, we rejoice when they are successful. Even if we don't like the person leading them. Even if we think they're the competition. Even if we take issue with other things that they might teach as secondary doctrine. But we rejoice when they preach the true gospel. And those ministries that we look at and that, that seem powerful and that seem popular, and we might even like the personality of the teacher, but they never preach this true gospel, but in preach, instead preach some watered-down, distorted, self-help, man-focused lie that condones sin and thinks that everyone is okay regardless of whether or not they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is something that we should reject. Because here's what Paul says when he answers the question, what about those who share a distorted gospel? What about those who don't share the whole gospel or a distorted gospel? Just a little bit further toward the back in your Bible, if you turned to 1 Corinthians, you will find the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the apostle Paul writes this. He says this, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says there are Christians, even in this early day of the church, that are already turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he makes this bold statement. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. So this question is, uh, that we, we, we must answer is what is the gospel? It is Jesus came, he lived, he died for our sins. As it was written in scriptures, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, he appeared to his followers. This is the true gospel that Paul tells us is central and we should rejoice when it goes out. But if someone is sharing a false gospel, we don't sit back and go, oh, it's okay, they're talking about Jesus. I mean, they're turning him into something he's not, but it's okay, they're talking about Jesus. Paul says, it doesn't matter, even if we were to come and tweak the gospel just a little, even if we were to change the story just a little bit and add a little bit of something to it, I want you to know that that is not the gospel, that is not the truth, and that if anybody comes and teaches you a gospel that isn't what has already been clearly taught to you, they are to be cursed. Now the word here, anathema. It essentially means, let them be damned to hell, is the mindset that Paul has here. He's not even, hey, go talk to them and try and correct things. He says, if someone is preaching a false gospel, let them be damned. 
Because all they are doing is leading people away from Jesus, not toward him. All they're doing is misusing the name of Christ, not glorifying him. There's an interesting discussion this morning in Sunday school. We were talking about just a, a teaching right doctrine and the accountability that you, we would have for teaching right doctrine. And somebody mentioned uh, our, the current pope and how um, he has actually begun to espouse and teach things that are outside of Catholic doctrine. Uh, and, you know, the old question, is the Pope Catholic? Actually, today the answer would be no, not, not as Catholic as he should be, honestly, because he's teaching things that are outside Catholic doctrine. That, that even, even the Roman Catholic Church that many of us find to be a little errant in its teachings in the first place, the Pope is going one step further. And what should we do? Should we say, oh, well, it's okay, he's the Pope? No. Paul says when someone distorts the gospel, when someone leads others astray, it's not a, an issue of, oh, just try and get better. Instead, may you be cursed to hell for leading people away from Jesus Christ. We need to be so passionate about the gospel as well. And, and I want to challenge you. A lot of us consume Christian media. And I really want to be challenging you as believers to be careful what you're consuming. You can listen to a teacher who's got really great ideas about how to overcome a certain circumstance in your life, and yet when you go back to their gospel presentation, they will present a false gospel. You need to reject them as a teacher in your life. You might listen to music, and it sounds really good. And I'm going I'm to name names. Bethel and Hillsong. And churches like those, Elevation, churches where they have begun to teach a false gospel. They put out some great worship music, believe it or not, because it's really emotional and it's juky and it's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. But when you go back to that church's teaching, they have rejected the gospel. They are perverting the gospel. They are turning it into be healthy, be wise, watch gold dust sparkle down from the ceiling. That's what it means to know Jesus. They've perverted the gospel. And it's time that we understand that and begin to reject them. Now, there are other churches where I don't agree with what they do in their church. They allow leadership that should not be leadership, according to biblical standards. They allow sin in their midst in ways that I think almost makes me believe they're not Christians, but they, they're still faithful to the gospel. They still teach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ faithfully. And so if they share the gospel faithfully, as much as I hate their practices in secondary issues, I should rejoice that the gospel is being shared. Does that click for you? That even if you love their practices, if the gospel is perverted, you should reject them. Even if you hate their practices, but the gospel is shared faithfully, you should rejoice in its faithful sharing. Man, this is a hard thing to do sometimes, isn't it? It's much easier to be more territorial and say, our church is the best. And um, I, I believe that because of you guys, not me, that's for sure. But we need to have a right perspective on the gospel, the true gospel, and rejoice when it's shared. And when the gospel is distorted, not be afraid to call out false teachers. Not be afraid to call out as damned those who would lead others astray from Jesus. 
So as we wrap up this morning, the worship team can make their way up to close us out here in just a moment. I want to encourage you to do a number of things. Number one, join with the Philippian church, join with the Apostle Paul, and seek to have a God-given perspective on suffering and trouble. Some of us are suffering today in ways we never imagined, experiencing hurts that we never thought would be ours. And I want to tell you that God's goal in allowing that into your life can be one of these three things. Discipleship, evangelism, or simply to his glory. My lips don't work so well when I'm trying to take a big chug, you know, this swig like a Napoleon Dynamite kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> some of you have seen that movie and it's funny, some of you have not, and you're like, what's his problem? Have a God-given perspective on your suffering and trouble. Realize that you may not ever know why you're walking through what you're walking through, but you can be confident that it's one of these three reasons. It's either to grow you or someone else in Christ-likeness. It is so that the gospel might be advanced, or it's simply so that God might be glorified. You're walking through suffering, and you might be wondering, why, God? It is without a doubt one of these three, and you might not know it till you see Jesus face to face. But you can be confident. It is so that you or someone else will grow in Christ, so that the gospel will be advanced, or that God will be glorified. I would encourage you as believers to do your best to center your life on your Christian faith. Everybody in your sphere of influence, they should know you're a believer, and not because you wear Christian t-shirts. Not just because your cross is gaudier than theirs, but because of who you are, how you live, and the gospel that you speak. And then to begin the practice of sharing the gospel more and rejoicing every time the gospel is shared. To actually count the gospel as something that's meaningful in our life. A currency worth celebrating and, and paying with and giving out to celebrate when God's word goes out clearly. Because here is our goal, to understand as we live, it is for Christ. Everything we are, everything we do, it's to Christ. It's to his glory. It's so that we might grow in him. It's so that others might hear of him. Everything about us should be living to and for Christ. Because when we die, we get all of this and eternity and perfection and righteousness and the presence of our Savior without limit forever and ever. Amen. Which is great gain for all of us. So, encourage you have a right perspective. Center your life on your Christian faith and rejoice every time you have the opportunity to share the gospel or you see the gospel shared around you. Let's pray and then we'll sing together. Close this. Father, we thank you for your time. How you've given us these moments to be with you, to be in your word. You've created this day especially for us. You have ordained that each and every one of us would be in this room, in these moments, and while there are struggles even here, 
as we deal with each other, we're also able to know that these words were for us, these moments were for us, these thoughts were for us. So help us to be able to focus rightly on the suffering and the troubles in our lives, to understand we may not understand, but that you are always using them to grow us or someone else up to advance the gospel or simply to glorify yourself. Help us to rejoice in what you're doing. May our lives be centered on you, Lord Jesus, and on the way that you would have us to live and, and walk. May the story of your good news be on our lips more often. May praise of your name come from our life more readily. And finally, help us to really be excited when we know that the gospel is being shared, both in our own life and in the lives of others. The only thing that will ever change us or this world is the good news you bring, Jesus. Help us to value it more highly. Today, pray for our brothers and sisters in India, the church where Pastor Steve is ministering and sharing. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would just renew and restore them. We know they've already had services this day, but that you're God and you're outside of time and space. And so even if we pray today for yesterday, you can do it move and do and bring glory to your name and salvation to that village in India so that you might be glorified, so that lives might be changed, so that the gospel might go forth. Thank you for the connection you've given us to them. And I pray that as we watch that work of mission, that we would rejoice and be inspired to do mission in our own front yards. In your name we pray, Jesus.
after I put a cough drop in my mouth and then realized it was still too big to talk with. Weird things you, you just forget about. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, writes a letter, Romans. Chapter 10, he's talking about salvation and the importance of how anyone who calls on the Lord can be saved. And then he writes this in verse 14 of chapter 10. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. You see, you and I can be those beautiful feet, those beautiful things that God creates to bring the good news of Jesus Christ into the lives of others. They cannot be saved if they never hear, and they will never hear if we don't share. And so like the Apostle Paul, we should be sharing the gospel as often as we can in as many opportunities, whether we're chained to that person in the cubicle beside us or, you know, slaving away at home, that we serve Christ and share the good news of Jesus and do so in the knowledge that it is a valuable and worthwhile thing that we do, rejoicing as the gospel message is shared. I want to encourage you this week to be praying about, praying for, and seeking to share the good news of Jesus with at least one person in your sphere of influence. And it could be as simple as, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Or it could be as in-depth of, yes, let's discuss the Trinity. But share Jesus with somebody this week, and I'll seek to do the same. And let's see what kind of stories God has for us to share next week. God bless you all. May you have a week that is just remarkably intimate with him and have the opportunity to share his good news with at least one person between this Sunday and next. We'll see you then.